Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest is Jerry Kroll. Jerry is the author of many books, including over 10 picture books, six young adult novels, an adult novel, some eight books of poetry, and it's quite possible I miscounted. <laughs> but most recently, Wakefield Press has released Workshopping the Heart, new and selected poems, and Puncher and Watman are soon to release a verse novel titled Vanishing Point. So, Jerry, it is a pleasure to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you very much, Magdalena. So let's begin by um, talking about Vanishing Point. Um, you were just in the U.S. for the production in Washington. Talk to me about that. How was it? Well, actually, it was a terrific experience, and the uh, young actors were really professional. They did a just superb job. I mean, it's a demanding, um, it's a demanding piece to do, not just because it's poetry, but there's a lot of um, there's a lot of words, a uh, lot of dialogue, and so they had to memorize all of this as well as worry about acting. And they did a really, really good, uh, good job. Um, I'll tell you a bit about how this came about. Um, in 2008, the director of this piece, um, Professor Leslie Jacobson, was in Australia on a, a Fulbright, um, a Fulbright fellowship, which is sponsored by the Australian American Fulbright Commission. And she was in Australia for five months, and she worked um, at Flinders University primarily. And I met her there through um, uh, another uh, friend, somebody who had actually started the Women's Studies program at uh, George Washington. Um, Diane Bell, who's a feminist anthropologist. Um, she's originally Australian, and she's back in Australia now. Um, anyway, um, Diane introduced me to Leslie, and Leslie was working on adapting Diane's novel, Evil, to the stage, and she wanted some feedback on the adaptation, so we decided we'd do a bit of a swap, and I started to work on Vanishing Point at her residency, and so... I gave her about 30 pages of what I had written, and she gave me the script of um, Evil. And the first thing she said to me when we got together after that was that I could see this staged. You know, these poems demand to be read out loud. Um, it's very dramatic. I really could do something with this. And so we started working together as I was finishing um, the novel, and it's had... Um, uh, about four staged readings. We did one, the biggest one was at the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts in Washington, D.C. They have a, a page-to-stage festival every year where theaters in the area can actually trial work um, in front of a live audience on the big stage, and we did that with Vanishing Point. And we had an audience uh, talk back of about 80 people after, and we got some very good feedback, and at that point we were talking about bringing music into, into this. So, um, and then Leslie workshopped it as well with um, some for students and classes, and then we had in 2012 a two-week workshop with professional actors primarily, and the composer to, to try to actually get this into a more um, final version, which we did, and then it was the first in the main stage um, season for George Washington University just well, about a week ago now. Um, so we had about 400 people um, coming to the performances over the run, which um, was a very good number. And uh, we had a panel discussion after one of the nights as well about eating disorders. Mm. So that was very useful too. 
Mm. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, I never really thought about this until I read your book and I had in mind as I was reading it, this, this notion of it being staged. Um, but it, it's very Greek, <laughs> the, the idea, um, not, not just the, the allusions in the book to, to, of course, to Diana, but the, the idea of, of poetry um, being also a kind of verbal form and, and, and a, a spoken form that becomes drama. Well, it goes back to drama's roots. I mean, it was originally partly religious festival, and there was a chorus. Uh, and in fact, what Leslie did was embody some of um, some of Diana's dialogue and also her internal thoughts into a kind of Greek chorus, which actually fits quite well. Um, and it fits well dramatically, but it also goes back, as I said, to the roots of drama mm. and the roots of poetry, which actually come from the same um, the same kind of stem, if you will. So, uh, in a way, it's a great way of getting poetry out to people again, instead of making them think of it as something just text-based and cerebral. Um, So, I I think the other thing is that a lot of people who go to poetry readings are interested in poetry per se. But the thing about being able to do a verse novel to stage it, um, and to also have music, is that you actually increase the audience and... um, help people realize that poetry is something that's vital and living and oral, mm. meant to be heard. Yes. I, and in some ways, too, it's very satisfying. I mean, when you read a poem, obviously you only have the poem, but this, this takes us through an actual character arc. So you really have that progression from you know the early poem to the later poems in, in these characters' lives. They, they transform in many ways. Well, that is what a verse novel is. It is a narrative. So, um, whereas a novel is an extended prose narrative, this is an extended poetic narrative. And I was very clear when I was rewriting this that I wanted there to be a narrative arc, that I wanted um, a story to be told, and I wanted that page-turning feeling um, for the reader as well as somebody who might stop and reread the language for, for its poetic effect. So um, that was clear. The big challenge for Leslie and I, of course, adapting it was that you couldn't do the whole novel on the stage. I mean, you'd be there for several hours. So we had to look for a narrative arc that would work in the confined space of the stage and the time because, you know, narrative um, in drama is confined to time and space, really, in a way that it isn't in a novel. Because you can get up, make a cup of tea, go out to work, come back and pick it up again. And you can always read back a bit if you've lost your place. But when you're in the theater, it has to all happen there. And so that was a big challenge, because there's really about a third of the novel that's not in, in, in a staged adaptation. So we had to make a choice about what the story would be, the focus of the story for the staging, as opposed to what it is in the novel. Mm. But also probably quite satisfying in a way to be able to pull it apart and still have it work. I mean, some of the pieces, for example, have been published elsewhere in other forms as well. So it's quite an adaptable. I mean, this, this particular story is particularly adaptable, isn't it? Well, I actually, um, I think that's right. One of the things, I've written a couple of um, uh, 
critical papers about the Burke's novel, and Leslie and I then did one in an overseas journal about the whole adaptation process. And I think a Burke's novel in particular is really um, a good candidate for adaptation to the stage because you've got the focus on the language, you've got... It is a text-based as well as an oral medium, whereas film is very visual. And so if you adapt a novel to film a lot of what you do will be translated into the images that are given to the audience. Um, drama is still more participatory. A lot happens in the audience's imagination. And that actually allows the poetry to work uh, its magic, if you will, on the audience as well. It's metaphorical. It's suggestible. You don't have the kind of realism that you do in a film where you have to scout for locations. I mean, there's no way... We were going to bring horses on stage, um, and we were going to be able to have four or five scenes um, created in a realistic way on the stage. And audiences know that. They come not expecting to have everything given to them the way it is when you're more passive in a cinema. And so a verse novel actually engages an audience in a way that... Um, uh, in terms of staging, in a way that it uh, it, can't, it couldn't if it was being filmed. Mm. Yes, for sure. And uh, how did the book itself come about? Because it's been kicking around for quite a while. There have been a number of stage readings and workshops. Mm. Well, I mean, I had to have time to finish it and be satisfied with it. The stage, wor- the stage readings and workshops helped me actually be fun. I mean, it was an interesting process. It kept sending me back to the longer text to look at the characterization and what happens, the interactions between the characters, and decide the final form I wanted it to take. And, and of course, you know, anyone who's a writer and has a full-time job that's other than writing knows that it's hard to find those blocks of time where you can actually sit down and hold the whole project in your head and not be interrupted by other things. And so it was a kind of ongoing process where I would have time to go back to the novel, I'd go and see what happened. I was there for um, three out of the four staged readings before. Um, So each time I came away with insights into the project that I might not have had before. So it was very useful from that point of view as, as well. I mean, initially, the first time I worked with Leslie on this, before I'd actually started, before I'd actually finished the um the manuscript, she said, we need some more characters. You know, I'd like it to be more dramatic. It's, uh, it's too intense. And so I created the character of the psychiatrist, which actually then worked her way into the play and demanded a lot more space <laughs> um, because uh, she started interacting with the characters in a different way. So um, that actually was quite productive, I think. Mm. And... Uh, I mean, I'd like to do this again because uh, I found it, it gave me a different perspective on um, the project I would have, wouldn't have had working alone in my study on it, I mm. think. Yes, for sure. So um, for me, I, I found the title poem, uh, Vanishing Point, the climax, uh, the turning, sort of the, the key moment, um, maybe even rock bottom, if you like, but, but also a, a real turning point. Could, could I get you to read us that? Yes, well, it is. It's the end of the first section, and it is when um, 
she thinks all the decisions have been made and she's she's gotten what she wanted, um, which is to to vanish almost into into nothing. Um, so this is uh, this poem is is the end the end of the first section, which is called "Losing It," and it's vanishing point. Rare as snow in the hills, I drift past and you gaze at my lightness and grace. You glimpse the world through me. Filter and sieve, I refine. I am mercury, the first matter, transmuting base flesh to gold, the purest grams. Rarify is a word I found that distills my heart. I love what I am. Now I am what I love. Nothing but the essential, free of impurities. Bones hold up a silken tent of skin, dusted with down. My eyes are frosty skies. That's all the description you need. Nothing more to add to my story, compressed to a point with its own meaning a hole in the ice into which I can vanish. Safe on the shore in the cleansing wind, admire me as the temperature drops. Now do you see the perfection of zero? Every time you shiver, remember me. Hmm. I'm shivering now. (laughs) I think... Perhaps it's one of the most intense moments in what is a pretty um, pretty intense read in any case. Um, what inspired you to write the book? Well, I was at a, I mean, this is what, one of the reasons why writers' residencies are quite useful. I was actually um, had an exchange residency at the Toronto Guthrie Center in Anna Kerrigan, Ireland. Uh, they have an agreement with Peruna Wright at the Writers' House which is the National Writers' Center in Australia. And I had had a residency, so you're eligible to apply for this. And I was there for a month. And um, what it means is you can drag all the projects you've been trying to start working on and haven't had a chance to. And, you know, you're there for a month in beautiful surroundings um, where people cook for you and you don't have to take out the dry cleaning or do anything with children and you don't have to go to work. It's it's absolutely heaven. And I was working on some short stories, but I also had an idea for... I thought this would be a sequence of poems about anorexia. Um, I had already written um, a very long sequence, which is the core of my book, The Mother Workshops, which is about my mother's descent into Alzheimer's. And I'd been working with longer and longer sequences. And... The Mother Workshops also had some prose in it, so it was a hybrid. And I really like working in hybrid genres. I like exploring different kinds of forms. And so the next step would be a verse novel. But in any case, I thought that this would just be a sequence. And I wrote about eight poems um, from Diana's point of view, the central character. And basically, she wouldn't shut up. <laughs> There was a lot more she wanted to say. And then I realized in order to make this not only intense but believable, I really needed to investigate why she was the way she was, um, to look at the um, her family context, 
uh, and the things that actually affected her as she was growing up, which means, of course, I was looking at a novel, not just a sequence of, of poems, um, which would have had their own effect. But in a lot of ways, anorexia is an incredibly complex disease, and it is a disease. There are various forms and different kinds of motivations. Control is certainly very important. That is, it is the one thing in life, if your life is out of control or your own circumstances are, that you can control. You cannot eat. On the other hand, it's incredibly dangerous because not eating is is one of the things that has an absolutely um, critical impact on your life and health. If you don't eat, you die. So it's a very different kind of addiction from alcohol or drugs. You cannot drink again for the rest of your life, even if you consider yourself an alcoholic, and still live. The same thing with giving up drugs. But you have to eat to live, so you can't give up food. And so actually, and it is a very 2020s, late 20th, 21st century disease. It has parallels with kind of religious... Um, with kind of fasting in various religions <clears throat> over the centuries for, for purifying oneself. But this is very much based on control and also um, body image, not being comfortable with your own body with the way it is. Um, so it, the kind of iterations we have now very much are very complex. And, of course, the media bombards us with ideas of perfect bodies. Mm. So it's very hard to get away from that kind of pressure unless you never look at television or Facebook or read magazines as well. So it's very complex. And, of course, every case is, is very individual. And so trying to treat this is a real challenge. And the panel discussion we had after deciding on my performance with the head of the University Counseling Service and a couple of young people who are involved with organizations focused on eating disorders um, confirm that, that it, every case is different. So there isn't just one way of treating it. And it really is a lifetime battle for a lot of people. Because, of course, you can't, you can't give up food completely, otherwise you die. Yes. Which has got, uh, apparently, it's got, anorexia has got a very high mortality rate, which is what the university counselor said. Hmm. Um, and I imagine the work must have triggered some fairly intense responses from some of the actors as well. Well, it did. It was funny. When we had the um, the professional workshop a couple of years ago, This the person who played the central character, Diana, who was just finishing her uh, MFA, her Master of Fine Arts in Classical Acting, and is now a professional actor, said she had been anorexic. Mm. And I've heard this, you know, personally from some of the other people involved that, Yes, you know, I was, or I was a fellow traveler, or I know somebody who was. Um, one of the staff members who came from Georgetown University who came to perform said, you know, this really had resonated because his sister was anorexic. So um, if you don't, if you haven't been yourself, you might have a family member or a friend who has been challenged by this. So it's it's quite pervasive, but often very hidden. Mm. Oh, or the spectrum of eating disorders. I imagine um, yes, across yes, the world yes. is quite is quite a certainly in the Western world, probably yes. in the Western world is quite wide. It is. It is indeed. Mm. Um, 
So um, I think it did obviously resonate with a lot of people for various reasons. Mm. Yes, um, some some of the poems um, from Vanishing Point made their way into Workshopping the Heart. And that's, I'm using that as a segue into that, that work yeah. as well, which I'd love to talk about. Um, how did you pick and choose, because it's not all from one section, how did you pick and choose the range of poems that you would include out of context? Well, um, it, it is it's a very interesting question and difficult. I, I needed things that would work um, out of context. In other words, it's a bit like trying to send, uh, if you've written a novel, with trying to send an extract to a publisher or find one to publish in a magazine. Some novels, it's very easy to pick sections out. Some novelists end in every chapter the way you might end a short story. And so there's a kind of narrative arc within a section. Others don't work that way. And so I really had to look with things that, uh, for things that would actually um, make sense within a restricted space, give people a sense of what the story is um, is about. I mean, I took everything from part one, so the synopsis, which is in Workshopping Heart, is just a synopsis, synopsis of part one. So I could then end with the poem Vanishing Point. But within that, um, I had to um, look for things that would stand on their own. It's a bit like um, the poems that I either sent into contests or had published. They had to be able to stand on their own, either as a short sequence or as an individual poem. And so I tweaked the titles um, when I would do that so people would be able to just read them as a standalone piece or standalone sequence. But it was difficult because, of course, there are going to be gaps, just as there are gaps in the, um, in the stage production. I mean, I've already realized that there's something I want to put in from the next section just as a 10-minute piece in the staged reading so that there's a sort of more, or rather the full production, so that there's a, um, a more coherent flow to the final scene. Um, and that always happens when you have to pick and choose. Um, I'm told often that the last thing directors want is the author or the playwright in the rehearsal hall because it can be difficult. But Leslie and I had worked out a way of of dealing with um, things that I might want to change in that I would just speak to her after every rehearsal and not talk to the individual actors so they weren't confused, and that worked quite well. Mm. Yeah. Apparently some some writers get up and scream, you're murdering my work! <laughs> I can imagine it's quite confronting, too, to see your character yes. kind of stand up, and, and you might think, oh, well, <laughs> that's, that's quite different, but it may be interesting as well to see the interpretations. Well, it is. It is. Mm. Um, it's, it's a brilliant way of having, look, when you, you know, if, if you go and read what you've written in a public reading, whether it's a story or poems, that you get see the kind of feedback you can't get working by yourself, by the way the audience looks at you, the way they breathe, the way they laugh or shuffle, you get um, both explicit and, you know, implicit feedback about how effective what you're reading is. This objectifies it one remove. Like when you hear your words in the mouth or mouths of actors, it gives it back to you in a totally different way. And so you can, you can actually respond, analyze, critique it, 
and think, ah, oh, that really works, or I'd like to change that line in a way that you can't when you're mumbling to yourself at home. Hmm. So it's it's very useful in terms of revision. Um, somebody once said that collaboration has got an inbuilt critical feedback me- mechanism, which is actually quite useful. Yes. Um, so with workshopping the heart, um, it, it's such a broad sweep. It's a, the, the book covers such a broad time frame. Yes. Um, you know, on the one hand, as I'm reading it, I felt it was almost a kind of primer on life, the birth of a child, the death of a mother, the growing yes. up and loss of children as they move out. Um, you know, you, you've almost got the full spectrum of what it means to be alive. Um, but also, I, I guess for you as, as somebody selecting those poems, do you feel, um, and I was talking to another poet about this uh, on the weekend, do you feel that you need to kind of be kind to young Jerry <laughs> as you're working through it? Actually, that's a good question, too. And I I, um, I have been discussing with this uh, another poet, Alex Scoven, who's got uh, his new and selected coming out this year. <clears throat> and, you know, we actually were talking about how we select what we wanted to put in, because, of course, you can't put in everything. It's not a collective. It's selected. Um and he said, you're going to revise anything. <laughs> and at that point, I hadn't start, started selecting. And I said, well, I don't really know. Maybe, maybe not. And, of course, when I started looking at the poems, there were always some lines that have bothered you ever since the poems were published. And I couldn't help but revise some of them. Um, some, some, it was really only a question of a, a line or two or a word. In a couple of cases, I wrote whole standards, but not too many. Um, and yes, I mean, the things you wrote, you do change, obviously, just like you change as a personality. You're the same person and yet you're different. The same thing could be said about writing. You're the same writer and yet you are different. You're more mature. You have a different attitude towards things. And so you want to keep some of that, um, I suppose, um, that sense of, of wonder of the, wor- of the world and maybe even a bit of the awkwardness of an early writer, and yet you don't want things that that are actually going to not work um, or an audience will think, well, this isn't isn't good enough. So it's, it's actually quite, you're right, it is a challenge. Um, but, of course, the first book is just that. It's a first book, and for most people, a first book is... Everything that you've published up to a certain point, put in the, the most comprehensible order you can. Um, after that, I think um, I certainly did. I started trying to to create books around themes, and that that helps you fill in gaps as well. Like you realize you've written a certain number of poems about either landscape or about parenting um, or about um, young people in crisis, and so you realize you have a core of something that would fit as a section or a book. And so that actually helps you organize what you're doing. But the first book is just that. It is often um, most everything you've published that you think is good enough put into an order that makes sense to a reader. Hmm. And that's what Death is Mr. Right, my first book, would have been uh, like, uh, something like 90% of the poems had already been published, so it was kind of time to put them into a book. Yes. Um, the clock is ticking, but I, I yeah. would really love to have you read one one poem from the collection. Um, and one thing that does seem to me to be a constant um, through through the entire book, and, and I guess everything you've written in the book, um, is this 
link between domesticity um, and the universal. That, that there's always there's always a I guess a local happening that becomes something broader and bigger. And, and I feel like um, eavesdropping is a good a good example of that. So maybe I can get you to read that one. Okay, I, I mean I think that's true. It's I think whether you teach children or have them or both, it that that connection with young people changes you irrevocably. Um, you realize that this world is not just about you; it's about the landscape, the country, the planet. And you have a responsibility about it as well. And so it just changes your perspective. Um, eavesdropping, I mean, it really is the epigraph to the book it comes from, House Arrest, is that wonderful comment by Carl Sagan, we are alone, we are alone in the universe or we are not. Either prospect is mind-boggling. Um, I mean, just think about that. We are alone in the universe, but we are not. Either prospect is mind-boggling. Either there are people out there, and that's scary, or there aren't, and that's, in a way, scarier. So this is really about eavesdropping to find out if there is anyone out, out there. And in fact, at the Deep Space Tracking Center at Tidbin Villa, which was outside Canberra, NASA had a 70-meter deep space antenna, which has been used as a radio telescope. And it's one of the things that was, you know, the purpose was to scan the skies to see whether or not we could get um, a sense of life out there. So this is called eavesdropping. The universe sounds like a distant wind with nothing to bang or rustle. No doors slam, no windows rattle. Stars that resemble shattered glass will always keep their distance unless an Olympic mind outraces light. Then we could explore our own backyard, the Milky Way, or call on a neighbor, Andromeda, two million light years down the block. For now, we must be content to eavesdrop. The telescope is 70 meters high, like a sci-fi war machine perched on the cow's set legs. The head could be a revolving restaurant, this massive bowl waiting for manna from heaven, or hell. Some experts warn that eavesdropping might be our undoing. They counsel absolute silence. Why take the risk? You don't invite someone to visit you haven't met. They might have nasty habits, far at the table. Their skin might be colors you haven't dreamt of. Worse, they could be like us. The dominant species of some far-flung star could be charming and savage with an urge to devour as rampant as the libido. The ultimate thrill. An alien tribe falling in love with Earth, coming to screw us all. Meanwhile, it had been Billa, they hold their collective breaths. On a noisy planet, Australia rates as quiet. The radio telescope is set to scan the silent skies. Scientists link up around the world. Soon the whoosh of space appears on their computer screens. They have seen the pulse of emptiness. They want a new vibration from some extraterrestrial heart. 
The universe sounds like a distant wind with nothing to bang or rustle. We invent a door, push it ajar, and wait to hear it rattle. Hmm. That could be my favorite poem in the entire collection. <laughs> Thanks. I used to like some of the lines a lot. Yeah. How can I resist farting aliens? So um, uh, we're just about out of time. Um, yeah, yeah. But um, if listeners want more from your work or want to hear what you're up to, um, they can find more about you at your website, which is www.jeriroll.com. Yes, and I actually have to update it now that I'm back from the States. So this is a good reminder. Wonderful. Jerry, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Um, and listeners, don't forget to drop in next month when we change tack entirely and talk to Ju- Julie Goodwin about her new book, 2020 Meals. Thanks very much. Bye. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.